or your phone or your tablet or whatever. You're going to read the word on this morning. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Just one short little announcement. It's in your bulletin this morning, but I just want to draw a little bit of attention to it. On on June 28th, uh, so the last Sunday of this new month, during the Sunday school hour, we are going to have a special business meeting, uh, and it relates to our pastoral position that's opening up. We're going to have some information, some details on what we're going to be voting on in the next couple of weeks, and then the 28th we'll gather in there during the Sunday school hour uh, and uh, and have a meeting and vote on on a particular item. And then the next week, July 5th, we're not having Sunday school uh, on that holiday weekend either. So a couple of weeks off of uh, Sunday school this summer. I hope that doesn't um, inconvenience you in any way, but a couple things that need to be taken care of there. All right? So I hope you are there. I hope you are in Mark chapter 14. We're actually going to dive right into the text this morning. I'm going to begin reading in verse 43, and I'll finish reading in verse 52. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. This is a sad and strange little passage, isn't it? We have a dude kissing another dude. We have a guy's ear being cut off. We have a voluntary arrest. We have an involuntary streaker there at the end. And if you ask me, this is one of those passages that helps validate biblical inspiration. Think about it. If a committee of people were trying to pass something off as the Word of God, they would try to make the collection of writings as plausible as they could. They'd come across a passage like this one and say, let's just cut this material out. It doesn't really add to the story. In fact, it makes the story sort of strange. You know, this document needs credibility. Let's, let's drop anonymous naked guy from the script and go with something a little less crude. But that's not how the scriptures were handled. The eyewitness accounts were recorded by divine inspiration. They were delivered to and taught in the early church. Those accounts were eventually canonized, and today they exist as part of the 27 books in your New Testament. We believe these accounts to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe them to be inerrant and therefore authoritative in all they teach and say. And that is why I don't get in this pulpit each week and give you life tips and success strategies. That's why I don't give you my version of the seven habits of highly effective people, because that would do nothing for you. God's Word, however, God's Word will slice through you. 
It will transform you from the inside out. It will show you the real meaning of grace and hope and joy and pain and suffering and redemption. It's a real book that connects with real life. The Bible does not contain little anecdotes on how to be happy or successful. No, it is God's message on how he has made a people right with him through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. And so that is why here at Enid MB Church, we want to faithfully and systematically preach God's word. It's rich, it's full, it's complete and sufficient, and we do very well to place it at the center of all we do and all we are about. So here we have 10 verses that are easily broken into five distinct, I call them micro-scenes, and they're there in your notes. You have a crowd, conspirator, combat, courage, and cowardice. But before I talk about the crowd that shows up to arrest Jesus, let me me remind you of the context, another C word there for us. Some of you may be joining us for the first time, or perhaps you've missed the last few weeks with the holidays and school being out, so let me bring all of us up to speed. Beginning, Beginning in chapter 11, we start the final week of Christ's ministry. Three years earlier, he showed up, a man from Nazareth, heralded by a, prophet of God, by a prophet of God, a man named John the Baptist. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, and then Jesus began his ministry by teaching. People were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority. They had never heard authoritative teaching. All they had heard was the traditions of the scribes and the rabbis, which had no resemblance at all to what Jesus was doing. Jesus was teaching them, giving them the word from God on high. Jesus then began calling disciples, men to follow him. He started with two sets of brothers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And these disciples would be eyewitnesses to his miracles. Literally dozens, if not hundreds, of displays of divine power would be performed by Jesus, and these disciples would get to see them firsthand. So this man from Galilee, not only does he have teaching authority, but he has authority over nature. The winds and the waves, they obey him. He has authority over sickness and disease and the spiritual realm and religion and the Sabbath day and the law of God and authority over legions of demons. All of it is under his reign and his rule. Very quickly then, Jesus becomes a target. The religious establishment begins to hate Jesus. They know he's a threat to them. Very early on in his ministry, they begin plotting against him. They see that he doesn't prop up their long list of self-serving rules and regulation, and so they commit to do away with him. All the way back in chapter 3, we see the Pharisees, the religious establishment, they want to have Jesus killed. And so now on his final week, a week that corresponds with the Jewish Passover celebration, those murderous feelings toward Jesus. They are at a fever pitch. During this week, their hatred of him was amped up when on Monday he arrived. He came into the city with huge crowds of people hailing him as the Messiah. Hosanna, they were shouting. Lord, save us. 
Then he came back to the city on Tuesday. He went to the temple, went right into the headquarters of the Sanhedrin, that 70-member council of priests and rabbis and scribes and men who essentially ran the temple operations. And Jesus went in and he threw all of them out. And he threw out their rotten, exploitive business operation at the same time. You have one man with thousands of people gathered in that 35-acre complex. He went in, he overturned the tables, he drove out the buyers and the sellers of the animals, and he just emptied the place, an act which was essentially a condemnation of the high priest himself. In doing this to the temple, Jesus was effectively supplanting the high priest. He was replacing the high priest. He was saying, this is my father's house, I run this place now, which is why he came back on Wednesday, and he commandeered the entire temple. And so for one solid day, the temple echoed with truth being proclaimed by the Messiah. And as he is teaching, one by one, each special interest group came to him with a question, with an angle attempting to trap him in his words. And one by one, you remember, he shoots them down. They wanted him to look foolish. He made them look foolish, every last one of them. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, those three days sealed Jesus' fate. It is now certain the Sanhedrin is going to kill him. They had a problem, however. Chapter 14 says they were afraid of the people. How are you going to arrest this man? How are you going to execute a guy with this kind of popularity, this kind of following? So in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, they think, well, we better not be doing this during the feast. They know that it might be a bad thing to try to do this when Jerusalem is overflowing with people. They know there are going to be some some, some repercussions with the crowds and that a riot could easily start. And riots, man, they are no bueno. They are no good. The Romans did not like riots. They dealt swiftly and severely with those implicated in a riot. The leaders did not want to be implicated. So they have a problem. They need to capture and arrest Jesus. They need to shut him down and they need to kill him, but they need to do it just the right way. They need someone who will deliver him over quietly, but who? They can't really make this offer to an apostle. As far as they know, the apostles, man, they they are loyal. They go to one of them, it's going to blow up their whole plan, so they're just going to have to wait till somebody shows up. Who would that be? Who would do that? Everybody who followed Jesus was enamored with him. Who would betray him? And you know the story. Amazingly, someone showed up. Chapter 14, verse 10. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Judas initiated it. A group of rabbis didn't come to Judas and talk to him about it. He initiated it. And the text says in verse 11 that they were glad. They were glad when they heard this. And one of the other Gospels tells us that Judas negotiated with the Sanhedrin for a certain amount of money, for 30 pieces of silver. They were willing to give Jesus, excuse me, Judas 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal of Jesus, which is, by the way, the price of a slave. Judas willing to sell Jesus for the price of a slave, which corresponds exactly with the amount the Old Testament says he would be betrayed for. So beginning in chapter 14, it's Thursday. 
Judas has been looking for this opportune moment to hand Jesus over, and when the twelve go with Jesus to an upper room where they have their final Passover meal, the final legitimate official Passover meal where the Lord Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which we'll commemorate later this morning, Judas is confronted with his opportunity. Jesus knows the betrayal plan is already in motion. He calls Judas out on it. Since it's going to be this guy who's dipping his bread in the dish with me, goes even further revealing who it might be, and then he tells Judas to leave the supper and do what he has to do and to do it quickly. Meanwhile, Jesus takes the remaining 11 disciples out of the city. They've crossed the Kidron Valley. They've gone up the Mount of Olives to a garden there. It's a place called Gethsemane. And there Jesus confirms in prayer his mission to die for our sins. He prays to the Father. He yields to the Father's will. And he resolves to drink the cup of God's wrath by going to the cross. He's accompanied by three sleepy disciples who cannot keep his command to watch and pray. And in verse 42, he informs them his hour has come, that his betrayer is now at hand. Which finally brings us to the five elements in your outline. Let's start with the crowd. Note how verse 43 marks out Judas. We'll talk about Judas more in a minute, but it makes clear, and all of the gospel writers say it this way, Judas one of the twelve. Judas has been part of this particular group, a chosen member of the twelve, handpicked by Jesus. But now, but now we see Judas, and he's a part of a different group. He's a part of a crowd, a crowd with swords and clubs. Mark's economy of words leaves us to wonder who exactly this crowd is, but he also gives us a clue when he says that they were armed with swords and clubs. Sword is the word for the Roman short sword, which would be the primary sidearm carried by a Roman soldier. Clubs were carried by the temple police, sort of these billy clubs that they use to keep order in the temple. So this crowd is part Roman and part Jewish. Judas had managed to get both groups in on this action. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus, the Romans who wanted to keep peace in the city, all of them showing up in the Garden of Gethsemane to take down Jesus Christ. And if we look at John's gospel, John gives us another interesting detail. John tells us this group of Roman soldiers, this group coming out to arrest Jesus is actually something called a cohort. And why is that interesting? Because a Roman cohort consisted of 600 soldiers, plus the temple police, plus whoever else they picked up along the way. Point being, this is a substantial force. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who have showed up armed in the middle of the night, ready to rumble, ready to arrest Jesus. Clearly, they thought this man was more than a teacher. You don't send out a band of this size and this significance to arrest a simple thought leader. The text says this group was sent from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, so that's the Sanhedrin. And they, the Sanhedrin, they had no doubt spun the words of Jesus in his teaching, spun his teaching on the kingdom of God and about his lordship, and no doubt they had convinced the Romans that this guy is the leader of a rebellion, 
And you may also know, if you've read the Gospels much at all, that there had recently been a Jewish insurrection against the Romans. There was already some of this going on in the city. And the Romans, they had put that insurrection down. It's referred to actually in Mark chapter 15, verse 7. And one of the principal players in that, in that insurrection, I should say, was a guy by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas. So out of the blackness, out of the middle of that night, comes this huge crowd, hundreds of them together, mindlessly, cowardly, unjustly, profanely coming for the purpose of killing the Son of God. The traitor, he then identifies the Lord. He tells them how he's going to do it. So you go from that first point crowd to now conspirator, verse 44 Now the betrayer had given them a signal or a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Let's look a little closer at the actions of the conspirator. The term kiss of death is a term that came into our English vocabulary because of this incident. If you look up its meaning, the kiss of death is defined as an intimacy with something with, with something that ultimately causes your destruction. An intimacy with something that ultimately causes your destru- destruction. That's the kiss of death. And the problem is not that Judas is intimate with Jesus. The fact that Jesus is intimate with Judas is sort of a problem for, for Jesus, but the problem for Judas is not that he's intimate with Jesus. Intimacy, in, intimacy with Jesus is always the kiss of life. Psalm 2 says it plainly, kiss the son lest he be angry. It's never a problem to be intimate with Jesus. The problem Judas has is that he's intimate with treachery, and he's intimate with bribery, and he's intimate with swords and clubs. You see, it's, it, it, it's never that people just reject Jesus. It's never that isolated. It's not that they reject Jesus, they displace him. There are always things more important than he is. For Judas, it was money. The Apostle John tells us this much in his gospel. Judas was the keeper of the purse, and he was always taking money for himself. Love of money is usually accompanied by love of power. That's what Judas wants, so he aligns with those in power, and he does it for the money. But why doesn't Judas walk up to Jesus and just say to the guards, there he is, arrest him, he's your guy. I've done my part. What's the kiss for? Why the spectacle? Why the drama? Well, I think Jesus looked and dressed like any other first century peasant. The scriptures tell us he's not much to look at. There's nothing unique or special about him. Nothing about his physical appearance or stature distinguished him as divine. He didn't wear the crown of a king or the stars of a general. He didn't have a halo like all of the medieval artwork likes to portray him. Furthermore, in the middle of the night, it might have been difficult to differentiate between Jesus and his other disciples. So they didn't want to pick up the wrong guy, or maybe their thought was Jesus would escape, so they made a very simple plan. The one to arrest would be the one who Judas kisses. And there we have Judas immediately going to Jesus, saying, Rabbi, teacher. So first, Judas actually mocks Jesus. In all the mocking that's about to come upon Jesus, this is the first blow. Rabbi. And then he kisses him. The Greek word, 
excuse me, the Greek verb kataphileo. Phileo is the, lo- is, is, is the word brotherly love. But kataphileo here means to kiss fervently. To kiss fervently. It, it, it's got a preposition added at the front which intensifies the verb, meaning this was ongoing affection from Judas to Jesus. This was a lavish expression of affection. This is a, a term used in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when the son comes home and his father, receiving him, kisses him lavishly, fervently, all over his head, will not stop kissing him. Same term. Luke adds a question from Jesus in Luke 22. Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Of course he knew. And Jesus could have destroyed Judas on the spot. He could have incinerated him with a lightning bolt right then and there, but he didn't. Judas kisses Jesus, and then Judas disappears off the pages of Mark's history. Mark is done talking about Judas. Now, if you read Matthew, you kind of know how the story plays out. Again, it's tragic what occurs in Judas' life ultimately hangs himself, even fails at that, falling off the tree, and his guts are literally splattered on the rocks, never benefiting from his bribe. But that takes us to verse 47. We've seen the nature of the crowd. We've seen the ugly, tragic conspirator Judas. Now we're introduced to another key element in the scene, an act of combat. Verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. This is a strange, startling incident here. Fortunately, we know who this is, and if we weren't told, we'd probably know anyway. We could guess that it would be Peter. We could guess that it would be impulsive, impetuous, passionate Peter, and we would be right. According to John 18.10, it was Peter, and according to John 18.10, The victim's name was a man named Malchus. He was a servant to Caiaphas, the high priest. He wasn't a police officer. He was not a soldier. He probably wasn't armed. So what then is Peter doing? What's Peter doing? He he so often in the gospel seems out of touch with the plan. Why is he doing this? What's, What's going on here? Well, something had just happened that led Peter to be this combative And you need to know what it is. Again, John 18, John gives the same account, same incident. They all arrived, the whole entourage with swords and clubs, and Jesus walks up to the Roman cohort, walks up to the officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees, this massive crowd with their torches and their weapons and their lanterns, and Jesus says, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says to them, ego eme. I am. That's something called the Tetragrammaton. It's the name of God, the I am. And that's all he had to say. According to John's gospel, when he said, I am, the whole group, the whole band, the whole crowd that came out for him collapsed to the ground. The whole crowd went down flat. They couldn't touch him. They couldn't touch his power if he didn't give them permission. That's why he would later say, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down by my own accord. And so again, in John's gospel, they asked him again, once they scrambled back up to their feet, 
who do you seek? Or he asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I told you, I am. And if you were there and you were one of Jesus' disciples and you had just seen him say, ego, me, I am, if you had just seen him say these two words and over 500 people collapsed to the ground, you'd be feeling pretty bold and confident, wouldn't you? You've, you would feel like you could pull out your little knife or your little sword and start just kind of dozing through the crowd because at any moment, all Jesus would have to do is say another word and they'd all go down again. It was this amazing, miraculous, triumphant, glorious, powerful act of Jesus that infused Peter with this sort of proactive strength. But your question might be, well, where did Peter get a sword? What's he doing with a sword? Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus said in Luke 22, verses 36 to 38, he says to his disciples, When I sent you out before, you didn't take a belt and you didn't take a bag and you didn't take extra shoes. You you went out and you preached the gospel and you were cared for and your your needs were met. But in the future, when I I send you out, you better take a belt and you better take a bag because there's going to be persecution out there. And by the way, guys, you better take a sword. He actually said to them, if you don't have a sword, you need to go get one. Not to kill people. Christianity doesn't advance like... Islam does in so many places in the world. It doesn't advance by killing people. But he said, you're going to need a sword because you're going to be robbed and you're going to be persecuted and you're going to need to be able to defend yourself. Here the Lord advocates self-defense, telling these guys, take a weapon. But in John 18, 11, he says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And later Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. The kingdom does not advance by force, it advances by one person at a time putting their faith in me. Christianity makes no advance by the sword, none whatsoever. This isn't a fight, Peter. It's not what we're doing here. But even though it's not a fight, in this next scene, in this fourth point, you see a tremendous amount of courage. A lot of times we only we only associate courage with battle. And certainly we need to commemorate what we commemorated yesterday, commemoration of the, of the invasion of, of Normandy on, on D-Day, and I can't imagine the courage and the valor and everything wrapped up in that event. But here the courage of Christ is equally as impressive. He says to the whole crowd, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. This is amazing boldness. He's standing there before the forces of hell and before the forces of man, and he's just in charge. He says, why now? You think I'm planning to fight you? Why the soldiers? Why all the police? Why all the clubs? Where were you on Monday when I was in the temple? And where were you on Tuesday when I was there? And why didn't you arrest me on Wednesday when I was answering all your questions? I know you were mad at me. Am I some robber? Am I some rebel that you need all these soldiers and all these police? Have I ever tried to run from you? Wasn't I there every day this week? Where were you, you cowards? Jesus is making it very clear here. His plan is not to be and never was. He didn't want to be a freedom fighter. 
He's not the leader of a rebellion, an insurrection. He's not trying to usurp Rome or defy Caesar or come against Herod. No. That's why he says the reason you're here right now in the middle of the night on an early, early Friday morning is because today is the day Scripture is to be fulfilled. And in your witless anger, you are fulfilling the plan of God right on schedule. That's why you're here, all 700 of you. Scripture's going to be fulfilled. And it's here we come to that final point, the cowardice. The cowardice. It says they all left him and they fled. All of them, including Peter. They all left. They saw there wasn't going to be a fight. And they bolted. That's what Jesus said they would do back in verse 27. He told them, you will all fall away. And instead of praying against the temptation to do that, the disciples went to sleep. They were ill-equipped. They were weak and afraid and unfaithful, and they all fled. Zechariah 13.7 says this would happen. Strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered, and that prophecy was fulfilled. But then here we get a closing picture. We get this isolated incident or these isolated details about one man's cowardice. I'll read it again. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet about his body, and they seized him, and he pulled free of the cloth and ran away naked. This is the only place in Scripture this detail appears. It doesn't appear in Matthew or Luke or John. Only Mark speaks of this guy. And because this is unique to Mark's gospel, many scholars, many interpreters believe that this is Mark, that he's the naked guy, that the house with the upper room belonged to his family, that Judas, having left the meal at Mark's house, brought the mob there first. But since Jesus and the eleven had left, Mark then trailed the group out to the Mount of Olives in his pajamas. And so when the dust-up occurred, he almost got caught. He tore free from his captors, and he ran home naked. Now, I have no idea if that's really how it went down. I would never teach that definitively. It is hard to imagine why this detail would be in here if the figure were not Mark. But I'm not sure we can really know if this is Mark's sort of signature on the book or not. But I do think I can say... Maybe not who, but why this funny little detail is here. It's here to illustrate, to be a picture of the shame that comes with fleeing from Christ. In your Bible, public nakedness is always associated with shame. And here in this passage, every one of Jesus' followers in this scene, they had fleed from him. They had bolted. They had left him which would be an action to their shame. But if you think about it, if you think all the way back, go to Genesis 3. What do we have there? We have a garden. We have the Word of God being betrayed in a garden. And Adam and Eve, they found themselves, what? Naked and ashamed. And now here, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Word made flesh is also being betrayed. And those who flee, they flee in shame. And in the end, what this passage reveals is is the fact that Jesus triumphantly and knowingly 
And even as we read in Hebrews this morning, joyfully he goes to the cross. He thoroughly fulfills dozens of prophecies in root. There were prophecies about Judas, his betrayer. There were prophecies about the scattering of the disciples. There were prophecies about him being the Passover lamb. There were prophecies about the cross and the, and the wounds that he would receive, that he would be lifted up, that he would be surrounded, that, that people would cast lots for his clothing. It, it's all there. It's all what the Scripture says, Isaiah 53, that he is a He is a sheep led to his slaughter. But he goes willingly. He's not being dragged. He's not being pulled. He's going. He's going out of love for his father, and he's going out of love for you because it's your sins that he's carrying there. We are all so guilty and so prone to self-preservation, aren't we? Think about everybody in this scene besides Jesus. You have the Romans. They're trying to preserve peace at all costs. Self-preservation. You have the Sanhedrin. They're trying to preserve their power amongst the people at all costs. You have the disciples. They're trying to preserve their own lives at all costs. Jesus? Self-sacrifice was his thing. Not self-preservation, self-sacrifice. Think about your own life. Think about how you're constantly posturing to preserve yourself, to preserve your position of power, to preserve your certain income, to preserve your certain reputation. Self-preservation is our method of operation so many days of our lives. But Jesus stands here saying, I'm sacrificing myself because I know you're so prone to serving yourself. Maybe you're finally getting to the place where you're worry, excuse me, weary of maintaining this posture of serving yourself all of the time, preserving your own credibility all of the time. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never really laid it down and said, man, I recognize what you have done for me that you're giving freedom to me, freedom from my self-preservation, freedom from me being the center of all that I say and do and giving me a purpose and a hope and a meaning beyond anything that I've ever known. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to just put your life finally in the hands of Christ and say, I trust you with it because you love me enough to die for me. That's really what we do as we gather at the Lord's table, isn't it? We look at what Christ has done. We really think on it. We use it as a reminder to tell us that that he laid down his life willingly, resolutely, joyfully, so that we could be his own. We're going to transition to that here in just a minute. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be present among us that would be present in the hearts and the minds of the people here, and that he would bring illumination to your word this morning. That it wouldn't just be the text on the page, and it wouldn't just be from the lips of this preacher, but that the Holy Spirit would really bring understanding to us as we study his word. God, also, that the Spirit would be present as we partake of these elements in front of us. 
that the gospel proclaimed through this table would just pierce us this morning in a profound way as we take the bread and we take the cup. Thank you that we're gathered here in this way and we're getting to celebrate uh, what's here before us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jared. Right. As we've... uh... We're all familiar with this, or many of us are, as we come and take Lord's Supper together. It's something that we've done um, for a long time. And as Jay just mentioned, we don't want to forget why we're doing what we're doing, why we come to the table, and what's it about. Scripture reveals that this is not just, uh, it's not just a ritual that we're doing. This is a command, and it's significant in the life and the worship of the church. Uh, it's the the continuing symbolic act that identifies us as those who are uh, in right relationship with God and with His church, the people. Baptism is our um, initial symbolic act, and this one is the one that we continually do over and over and over. Uh, communion is a built-in time of, for us to express unity and fellowship together. It's a built-in time for us to examine where we are with the Lord personally. And where we are with those around of us, those around us, those the church members, it's also um, a time for us to proclaim the Lord's death to ourselves, to preach the gospel to one another as we take it together. And so we we want to invite you to take it with us today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we 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 welcome you to be a part of this with us. Um, you don't have to be a member here, but you do need to be a member um, of Christ's body, the church, meaning you have a relationship with him. And so if that's not you today, you can just pass the elements by and that's fine. And uh, you could take it at another time. Um, but let's, let's prepare our hearts to take this together. And I want to invite those who are going to be serving uh, the, the table and those that are going to be leading us in worship to come forward at this time. We're going to pass each of the elements, the bread and then the juice, by. And then um, we're going to pass the bread first, hold on to it, and then we'll take it together. Again, expressing that unity and fellowship as we all partake together. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, you have been planning this for a long time. It has been your desire that your son, Jesus, that you would go to the cross. That you would be um, broken for us. That you would take the punishment that we deserve. Jesus, we thank you. As we saw in the text today, no one can take your life, but you lay it down freely. And so we worship you. Thank you for your life. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Let's pray for the cup. Jesus, what a work that you did. That your blood is covering, atoning for our sin. We know that you did that gladly, with joy. But we know it was painful. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your blood that was shed for us. That makes us in right relationship with the Father. Amen.
Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink it as often as you do. As often as you, as often as you do this, drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For whenever we drink this bread, or eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen.